we're continuing tonight. This is our second session um, of the Gospel-Centered Family. But before we jump into that, um, before we jump into tonight's material, which is God's Design for Marriage and Sexuality, Part 1. This is for uh, all you type A personalities that uh, accused me of skipping a blank. Um, and rightly so, last week in our grace acrostic uh, for the gospel. Uh, I believe the one I skipped, and correct me if I'm wrong, is Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. That's certainly uh, an important point that we want to communicate as we communicate the gospel. But let's jump right in um, to tonight's material. God's Design for Marriage and Sexuality, Part 1. And uh, several of you, I know, have uh, just copies of tonight's notes. We'll have some more of the full version next week so you can uh, catch back up. But we're going to start off uh, by stating, or I'm going to start off by stating, that your understanding of gender and marriage informs how you approach dating, relationships, singleness, parenting, divorce, sexuality, and sexual immorality. And I know that's sort of a bold claim, but I certainly believe it to be true, and I hope that uh, you do or will as well uh, at the conclusion of our time together. But your understanding of gender and marriage speaks to much more than just uh, your gender and your marriage. It has to do with all of your relationships, particularly family relationships. And so uh, you've got a quote there from John Piper. The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It has taken a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. Uh, And this is nothing new. We see this all around us in the culture that uh, there's this... Um, desire to suppress what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman uh, and and virtually say, well, there's really no distinction. Uh, And part of that is good and part of that is harmful and and we want to jump into that tonight and we want to listen to the Word of God, reinforcing what we said last week that when it comes to these issues and really every issue, but this is simply what we're diving into at this particular season, we want God's Word to speak. Uh, as believers in Christ, as uh, individuals in a church that stands on the authority of Scripture, that is our ultimate foundation for truth. Not anything that I have to say or anything anybody else has to say. We want to know what God has to say on these issues. Why? Never has there been such opposition to the authority and and relevance of Scripture, such demand for revising everything Christian, Or such deep and bitter division between crusading factions as now being caused by the conflict over sex. And that's a quote from uh, somebody that I mentioned last week, Daniel Heimbach. He's a professor, I believe, at Southwestern Seminary. He's also written uh, a book, a thick book, that jumps into these issues very thoroughly in much more detail than I will, entitled True Sexual uh, Morality, but a good book. Um, Genesis chapter 1. Beginning in verse 26, you have this in your notes. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, 
so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And I'm going to... You have a number of scripture references in your notes, as you can see. And um, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm actually going to give you a few more tonight to reinforce some of these points. So I'm going to be turning to just a handful of others. You feel free to jot down those references if you like. Uh, you certainly don't have to. Don't expect you to turn to all these with me. If you would like to, uh, that's great as well. But Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, in fact, I'm going to back up just a little bit. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This is God's covenant with Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood... I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So the picture there, men and women being created in the image of God and even post-fall, God's still acknowledging, although the image had been marred in the fall, that the, the image of God was still uh, going forth in men and women. And one other verse on that uh, subject from the New Testament, James uh, chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. And so we see the picture in Scripture, uh, the truth that is presented both pre-fall and post-fall, that men and women have equal worth before their Creator. Men and women have equal worth before their creator. And this is true because we have all been created in the image of God. Men and women. That's a picture of Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them. We have all been created in the image of God. We start off singing tonight about the worthiness of God. And if we truly believe the scriptures and that we're created in the image of God, that also has implications for how we understand ourselves and how we understand our fellow men and women has a lot to say to us about our own self-worth and self-image before a God who's intentionally created each of us in his image 
So we've seen pre-fall, post-fall, created in the image of God. Even though our image is marred in the fall, we still retain uh, uh, in some aspect the image of God in every human being. And so because we have the image of God, we, we display to some extent God's character in the world. What does it mean that we've been created in the image of God? It means, one, that we resemble God. We resemble God in some form or another. Psalm 94, verse 9, does he who implanted the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? And so these are obvious parts of the way that God designed us, designed life, the way that he created. He created us with these body parts, these characteristics, ears and eyes that that have certain functions, and, and we know that. And this doesn't mean that God has those. This is kind of anthropomorphic language, but uh, God does see, and God does hear. And, and then the, the way that he has physically and biologically made us on some level or another is a reflection of who he is. And so we resemble God. We also represent God. We represent God in the world. Psalm uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Same picture that we saw in Genesis chapter 1 of humankind ruling over the other creatures that God has made. So we represent God in the world. And then uh, thirdly, we can relate to God. We can relate to God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So God holds us accountable. There's a way in which we can relate to God and God can instruct us to to do or not do certain things, to behave in a certain way. And we're responsible because we as as creatures that are made in his image can relate to him. And then fourth and finally, we are each responsible before God. We're responsible for our actions before God. Romans chapter 2 verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. All right, and moving forward, I want to give you a caution, one warning. Where we're about to go with this is not a popular message today, uh, but that shouldn't surprise any of us because we are the people of God in the church. And and, um, it it would make sense that what we adhere to, what we ascribe to, what we claim is, is true is not what, generally speaking, the world claims as true. And so know that. And in fact, I would go so far as to say this is even, there there are differences on this particular subject, particularly when we're talking about gender roles within the church, uh, within the evangelical church, within the big picture church. And that's okay. And, And probably, most likely, probably most definitely, even within our own church. And that's okay too. But, uh, you'll see kind of my perspective on this and why. And, um, if you want to chat about that further, then we'll certainly do that. Uh, don't raise your hand and object in the middle of it, please, unless, you know, the Holy Spirit's just leading you, pressing on you to do that. But uh, be happy to chat with you about any of this um, afterwards or another time. Not afterwards tonight, because we have Andres trip interest me. So. All right. 
So men and women have equal worth before their creator, but men and women were created with different roles. Men and women were created with different roles. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. We were created to work together to complement each other. We were created to work together to complement each other. God created man to be the head. God created man to be the head. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ... And the head of, of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the, his body of which he is the Savior. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So God created man to be the head. Now, we could spend a lot of time on these particular verses. and We're not going to do that tonight. Don't get upset with me. I'm just reading the scripture here. So God created man to be the head. God created woman to be the helper. He created woman to be the helper. Back to the Genesis 2 uh, passage of scripture. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. God created woman to be the helper. God desires for man to practice loving Authority over woman. God desires for man to practice loving authority over woman. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ has loved the church. The greatest display of love ever shown. To ever be shown, laid down his life for for his bride, the church. That is the way that, man, you and I are called to love and to cherish and to treat and to value our wives. Another reference that we won't read on that same subject, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, speaks to that same relationship. God desires woman to practice joyful submission to man. Joyful submission to man. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And now the scripture reference there, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And this is where we kind of transition and get uh, to the good stuff, in my opinion. God created the marriage relationship between men and women to reflect who he is. 
And to me, this is, this is part of the biggest biblical basis and argument for this particular point of view. God created the marriage relationship between men and women to reflect who he is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. That us, that plural, referring to Trinitarian God. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God is Trinitarian. Trinitarian, I don't think that came out right. Meaning three persons. One God, three persons. Those three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons and one Godhead. And all of those persons are equally divine. All are equally divine. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's likely pictured there is God the Father creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And usually when we see just uh, the, the title, God, in Scripture, it's a reference to God the Father. John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word. We know that to be a description of Jesus, the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Another scripture reference that I want to read out of John comes from John chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. The Jews gathered around him, talking about Christ, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them Out of my Father's hand, I and the Father are one. John chapter 10, verses 24 through 30. And then Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Equating the Holy Spirit with God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. So you've lied against the Holy Spirit, meaning you have lied to God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 uh, through 20. Another description of the Son of God, Christ. A beautiful description. I do want to read this one. One of my favorites. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. A beautiful picture of the Son of God equating him with the Father. He is fully divine. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, another beautiful description. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So God is Trinitarian, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are equally divine. Nobody wants to argue that point, I don't think. Uh, but uh, we could do that at another time as well. All comprise one God. All are equally divine. All comprise one God. All are distinctive persons displaying loving authority and joyful submission. All are distinctive persons displaying loving authority and joyful submission. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, John four thirty four. Another reference, John chapter fourteen, beginning in verse fifteen. John chapter fourteen, beginning in uh, verse fifteen. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows him, but you will know him for he lives with you and will be in you. So the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, in essence, at, at the Son's disposal, as the Son asks the Father, the Father will send the Spirit uh, to us, to his people. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So Christ, on an equal playing field with God the Father once again, interceding before the Father for us. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. In other words, the Spirit and the Son, equally divine. Nobody would, would want to pity the Son or the Spirit, because they're submitting to the Father. It's a joyful relationship. It's a loving relationship. As the Father has loving authority, and the Spirit and the Son are joyfully submitting to His loving leadership. So, question posed to us, do you see the picture here? Do you see the picture? When we embrace God's design for our gender roles, we beautifully reflect the character of God. When we embrace God's design for our gender roles, we beautifully reflect the character of God. When we embrace God's design for marriage, we display Christ's love for the church. We display Christ's love for the church. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife 
loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So we have this smaller picture, this window into the relationship here in Ephesians chapter 5 between a husband and a wife that is a picture of something far grander, far greater, the picture of Christ and his love for his church. And his church gladly, joyfully submitting to the, the leadership of Christ. So our relationship, a relationship with our spouses, if you have a spouse, relationships and our intimacy that we can have in marriage is only a picture of something far, far greater. The best marriage is only a, a small snapshot of the intimacy that the church can have with the Savior. A much larger mystery, a much grander mystery, a much greater mystery that, that we sinners, broken, lost people who have rebelled against God can have eternal life and eternal satisfaction and an eternal relationship, intimate relationship with our Creator through Christ. Full and ultimate satisfaction is found only in Christ. So our obedience is only a picture of something far greater, the gospel of Christ. And our spouses, if we're married or any other relationship, can never take the place of Christ. And I dare say that something that is wrong with many of our marriages today and our view of marriage is that we're looking for something in a spouse that only Christ can satisfy. That only Jesus Christ can fulfill. So don't look to your husband. Don't look to your wife for something that only your creator can satisfy. Be satisfied in him. Whether you're married. Whether you're single. Whether you're divorced. Whether you're widowed. Full satisfaction. Full and complete and lasting eternal satisfaction can be found in our Savior. So run to Him. Find satisfaction in Him. And when we do that, we will have a much healthier and a much more biblical relationship with our spouse if we're married. So Jesus, the picture here in the Gospel, the picture of the New Testament is that Jesus is our sacrificial groom. Jesus is our sacrificial groom. When husbands lovingly and sacrificially lead their wives, they provide a picture of of Christ to the world. When husbands lovingly and sacrificially lead their wives, they provide a picture of Christ to the world. And the church, then, is His submissive bride. The church, the body of Christ, is also the bride of Christ. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. When the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. So the picture of scriptures that we as the people of God are the bride of Jesus Christ. The true satisfaction is only found in so in conclusion tonight, by being faithful to God's design for sexuality and marriage, we participate in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By being faithful to God's design for sexuality and marriage, we participate in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that not a beautiful picture for us? Motivation for us? Be different from the world. Did I skip a blank? Dead gimmick. The one right before that? I'm getting good at that. When wives joyfully submit to their husbands, they provide a picture of the church to the world. You could have figured that out. A picture of the church to the world. So husbands, we're to provide a picture of Christ to the world. Wives, you're to provide a picture of the church to the world. Put them together. When we're faithful, we are showing a picture of the gospel to the world. So just by being faithful to God's design, we are displaying a a tangible picture before the world of the love of Christ for his people. Does it mean that that's an excuse not to use words to verbalize that message? Because we certainly will have to connect the dots, but... It's certainly an explanation to the world for our faithfulness and our devotion and our love for our spouses because we want to provide a picture of the gospel for the world. Amen? Let's pray together, and then we're going to close in uh, a hymn tonight as we conclude. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you desire to, to know us and be known by us and to satisfy us, to satisfy every good desire that you've given us in the way that you've created us. And Lord, we acknowledge tonight that, that only true satisfaction and lasting satisfaction can be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Lord, we, we pray that, that we would first and foremost be found faithful to Christ. Lord, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's the the ultimate sacrificial groom, Lord. And then our understanding of that relationship would affect how we treat our husbands and our wives and our family members, our kids, and our neighbors, our friends. Lord, for your glory, may you use us. And may you find us faithful so that we might be faithful representatives of your gospel in this world. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.